Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Aaron. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, uh, lead pastor here for Riverwood, and uh, my privilege to get to continue on in our series through the uh, Gospel of Mark. Uh, right now, in my uh, free time, I'm reading a fiction book that has way too many characters. I mean, we're talking like dozens and dozens and dozens of characters, and they expect you to remember their names and backstories, and it's, it's almost overwhelming, and yet I'm enjoying it. But there's one particular character who in this book is called a world singer. A, a world singer is someone in this book who travels around the world, going to various countries and cultures, and gathering their stories, and kind of, I guess you could say, like cultural artifacts. Well, this one particular world singer, he, he's really good at remembering details. Like, if you want to learn about a culture, like what types of food they eat, uh, the way they approach gender roles, uh, it, you know, kind of like their fashion, this is the guy to ask. He remembers the details. But if he goes to try and tell a story... His listeners kind of look at him like, what is that supposed to mean? You ever found yourself in a conversation with someone where they start talking and you just feel like, to use an old baseball idiom, they, you feel like they're out in left field. And you just kind of are asking yourself like, what is that supposed to mean? Hopefully you don't think that when I preach. Uh, today, we're going to get into the book of Mark. And there's, there's going to be some things about it where you're going to ask yourself, Where's Mark going with this? Like, what is that supposed to mean? It's going to feel like Mark is a little bit out in left field. Because today, it's going to feel odd. Mark, throughout this gospel, as we're now up in halfway through chapter 6, we've been seeing him point very, very clearly to Jesus. I mean, that's why the subtitle for this entire series is The Purpose and Person of Jesus. And yet today is not about Jesus. This is the only major story that Mark tells that Jesus is not the prominent central figure. And so that right there is going to make it feel a little odd. But then Mark, as he starts telling the story, he tells it in this kind of convoluted, meandering way. It's like he shares some of the ending of the story at the beginning, and then he's got to backtrack, and he just kind of seems to be all over. And you're going to be left kind of wondering, like, where is he going with this? What is this supposed to mean? Because of this... For one small moment, I thought about skipping the story. I thought about just kind of skipping over it or maybe just kind of skimming through it and getting back to Jesus to get into the good stuff. But we can't skip the story because what we're going to see today actually helps us to appreciate next week even more. So for us to get everything out of next Sunday, we've got to stop and listen to the story. But also, there is an important theological truth in this story that we need to get. If you consider yourself a Jesus follower, you need to hear this. But I'm going to warn you, it is going to make you uncomfortable. Like, really uncomfortable. And yet, you need to hear this because you need to work through this. Because then by working through it, it's going to get you to a place in your faith that I believe God wants you to be and I think you want to be as well. And so we have to tune in to this really awkward story that is kind of out in left field. So because I know we're about to hit something really, really awkward today, let me pray. So Heavenly Father... I have worked and prepared. Um, I've prayed over this message. I, I, I want you to use it. But now, God, it's, it's time for you to do what only you can do. Uh, Lord, this isn't to be about me, about what I want to say. It is about what you have already embedded in your scriptures, about your truth. 
God, all of us bring different biases to the scriptures. We, we bring our own backgrounds, our own stories, our own preferences, our, our, our cultures. God, we need you to just shatter through all of that and help us to see you. So God, if, if today makes us uncomfortable, help us to not try to twist your truth in your scriptures to make it fit what we want it to say. Help us instead to allow you to twist us and change us so that we come in alignment with who you are and the type of life you call us to. Because God, you want to do an important work in us because you want to do an important work through us. So help us, whether the, we are right here at Drosty Hall or we're, we're listening to this online or we're listening to the podcast, that we would just sit and allow you to teach us so that you might mold us into that image of Christ. So God, help us to sit here and allow you to do what you need to do, even if it makes us uncomfortable. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I'm gonna invite you to open it up to Mark chapter six. We're gonna be in verses 14 through 29. If you're a first-time guest with us, uh, don't worry, and you didn't bring a Bible, don't worry about it. I'm gonna have the scripture up on the screen so you can follow along with us. Uh, but I'm gonna encourage you, when you come back uh, next Sunday or another Sunday, please bring a Bible with you because we open this thing up every single week. Now, at Riverwood, we don't care if you use a digital Bible or a paper Bible. We just want you to have one. So if you've got a smartphone, please take the time to download a Bible to it and then open up to Mark chapter 6. Or if you want to go old school like me and have a paper copy of the Bible, just simply give us your uh, mailing address. We've got high-quality Bibles that will last you for years, and we'd love to get one of those into your hands because we want you to have it here on Sunday so you can open it up with us and begin to study it so that you might begin that process of beginning to look more like Jesus, to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. But also, we want you to have it so that you can use it not just on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and every day. So just let us know. We'd be honored to get a Bible into your hands, and that way you can use it with us. Uh, let me read from Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. You read silently along as I read aloud. Well, King Herod heard of it. But we're going to explain what the it is in just a little while. But King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Uh, some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, well, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Uh, Parents, I probably should have warned you that uh, today's story was a little PG-13, maybe a little rated R. I I was telling Ed this uh, before the the service, and he goes, ah, rated R for real life. Uh, So I I guess I just created opportunities for you as a parent to have conversation with your child. Um, But last week, we uh, saw Jesus send out his 12 disciples in pairs. He sent them out two by two, and they went to these various communities And they went to these Jewish communities to tell people that the kingdom of God is at hand. And to back up that message, they began to perform all of these miracles. Jesus gave them authority to cast demons out, to uh, heal people, to, uh, uh, you know, we saw from uh, the book of Matthew, to, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers. I mean, they were doing all of these miracles. Now, we've already seen here in the book of Mark how when Jesus was traveling around, like word began to spread about him. And we're gonna really see it next week. But now imagine, instead of just Jesus traveling around and his 12 disciples kind of in his, you know, following his footsteps, now it's six pairs of guys going out. Like word began to spread even faster. And word actually traveled into Jerusalem to the highest places in governmental offices. They made it all its way, all of the way to Herod. Now, Herod, when he heard about Jesus, he thought he kind of knew who this Jesus was. We, we saw that he said that this is John the Baptist resurrected. We're going to get to John here in just a little bit, but we need to first talk about Herod. There's actually about four different Herods mentioned in the Bible. Uh, three of them are called Herod. One of those Herods is called Agrippa in the book of Acts. Uh, the first Herod you might know of is Herod the Great. Uh, Herod was in uh, leadership when Jesus was born. But now when we find ourselves in Mark 6, Herod the Great has died, and this is now Herod Antipas. But when Herod the Great died, he didn't just leave everything to his son, Herod Antipas. He actually approached the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and asked him to split his kingdom up among the three of them. You see, Israel didn't have the right to just kind of lead themselves. They're part of the Roman Empire. And so even though the Caesar gave them some authority and autonomy, they still couldn't make decisions like that without the approval of Rome. Well, Caesar Augustus honored the will of, uh, of Herod the Great, split the kingdom up among three of his sons, one of them Herod Antipas. And so this is the Herod that we get to know. But you notice that the very first thing we see there in verse 14 is he's called King Herod. Well, he wasn't really a king. It was just kind of an honorary title. Uh, and a more appropriate title for him would have been Tetrarch. In other words, he had some authority over his region and area, But like when he collected taxes, it didn't just go into his kingdom's uh, coffers. Like they had to send a big chunk of it to Rome. Like they couldn't just do anything and everything they wanted. They were still privy to the the leadership of of the Caesar in Rome. Uh, To put it in modern terms, it's kind of like he was a governor. He had some authority, but yet there was still kind of this federal government who still could make decisions that affected you. But Herod loved to think of himself as a king. So because he thought he was a king... He acted like he was a king. And because he's the king, he's basically above the rules. He can do whatever he wants. Which means, if he wants his brother's wife, he can take her. Because after all, he's the king. Now, that's a bit unethical. It's a bit awkward. 
I, I wonder what the Herod family reunion was like, you know, when, when Philip, you know, walks up and goes, oh, hey, that's my wife you got there. But why did John feel like he had the right to tell King Herod what you were doing is unlawful? Because, I mean, after all, in our culture, we talk about how, you know, well, whatever happens to two consenting adults is, is their business. So why does John think he has the right to say this is wrong? I mean, because after all, we don't know the full story. Who knows? Maybe Philip was actually abusive. And so Herodes is fleeing a really dangerous situation. Maybe Philip had actually had the affair first, and in her tears, she runs to her brother-in-law, who's like her friend, but then she ends up in his arms. Or maybe Herodias's friends, her girlfriends, were all like, honey, we know you love him. You do you. And so she runs off by the advice of her girlfriends. We don't know the full story. All we know is that Herodias and Herod want to be together. So why is John speaking against it? Who does he think he is? So, I mean, after all, we're Iowa nice. We don't walk up to people and say, you're a sinner. Like, no, that sounds intolerant. It sounds judgmental. We might say it behind their back. But, but no, we're Iowa nice. We would never do that in front of someone's face. Why does John not act Iowa nice? Why does he get in Herod's face and say, this is wrong? What you have to understand is Herod, biologically, racially, was more of an Arab. His family was from Idumea, a region in the southern peninsula of, of, of Arab. But they had been in Israel so long that they converted to Judaism. Herod the Great considered himself a Jew, and Herod Antipas followed in the footsteps of his father, so he was considered a Jewish man, even though he wasn't racially Jewish. He said, I follow Yahweh, which means he put himself underneath the Mosaic law. Well, in the Mosaic Law, in Leviticus 18.16, it very clearly says, you shall not take your brother's wife. And yet, Herod had done just that. And John the Baptist is a rabbi. We know he's a rabbi because he had disciples. Only rabbis had disciples. We can see what John taught, and he was teaching the Mosaic Law. And as, he, and as he's explaining it, he has the right to speak into the culture and tell people, here's what it means to follow God. And so when the leader of your nation is outright sinning in front of everyone, he calls him on it. That's why he had the right to it. But Herod didn't like it. Herod wanted his wife. He wanted Herodias. So he wanted John silenced. So he has him arrested and thrown in prison. Now, we heard in there, if Herodias had had her way, John would have been killed. But Herod, even though he didn't like John going around saying these things, he, he still kind of respected him. It, it says that he would bring John in front of him. It was like a little private preaching party. You know, he'd bring John in, they'd have these conversations, and it says there that Herod was perplexed. Like, he just didn't get it, and yet he, he kind of liked listening to him. He, he was fascinated. It's kind of like when you drive by on the interstate and you see a car cr crash, you, you know, like, oh, I shouldn't look. I might see something. I, I just would never get out of my brain. And yet you can't not look. You know, it's like John, I mean, the Herod's looking at John. Like, I don't like what you're saying, but yet I'm fascinated. I can't seem to turn away. So John had Herod's respect, and yet he kept him in prison. John had broken no uh, rules. He, he committed no crime. And yet Herod keeps him locked away in prison and only brings him out every once in a while to listen to him. Because Herod wanted Herodias as his wife. 
Well, then that one fateful night came. Herod's having a birthday party. Did you notice there, it's military governors, it's you know, leading men of Galilee, it's, it's all the bros. And that makes it even more awkward when you realize that they have his stepdaughter come in and dance, and it pleased them. And with the wine flowing through him, he makes this big deal, he wants to impress the guys. He's like, whatever you want, that was such an amazing dance, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. By the way, if you are ever in a kingdom, and the king offers you half of his kingdom, don't take him up on it. Because you will unexplicably find yourself dead so that he can keep all of his kingdom. It's just like hyperbole. He's just exaggerating to show I really, really like you. So you can ask me anything up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And as we hear, she runs to her mom, says, what should I ask for? And this is mom's opportunity to finally get John dead. She asked for John to be beheaded. And it happens. John was such a unique man. I mean, he was like really, really unique we, we know through the scriptures that John was the cousin of Jesus. That, that you know, Mary and Elizabeth, the, the two moms were cousins. And so this would make John and Jesus like second or third cousins. So they probably grew up with much awareness of each other, maybe occasionally even playing with each other as kids. You know, probably traveled up to Jerusalem together. So even though they didn't grow up in the same town, they would have known of each other and probably knew each other personally. John, though, chose a very different path than Jesus. Whereas Jesus worked as a carpenter and, and then steps out into public ministry as a rabbi, John heads out into the wilderness. And, and he wore camel hair. I mean, it just sounds incredibly itchy. He, he ate locusts, you know, like grasshoppers and honey. I, I really love honey, but I don't think I'm going to be dipping my grasshoppers in anytime soon. I, the, the dude was just weird. And yet people flocked out of Jerusalem to go into the wilderness to hear this crazy dude preach because he could preach like no one else. And when he preached about the word of God, as a rabbi explaining the Mosaic law, it convicted people of their sin. It cut to the heart, and they wanted to somehow do something to repent. So they began to walk into the waters and be baptized by John. God was using this crazy man to pave the way for Jesus. That's why Jesus, when he's describing John, Described him as, as of, of, of all the people born among women, there's no one like John. John was the greatest. I mean, like, it's like John the Baptist was the original goat, the greatest of all time. And yet John finds his ending by being in a prison, unceremoniously beheaded. And what's really uncomfortable is that Jesus knew this would happen and didn't stop it. You see, in Luke chapter 7, there's a story where John is in prison, but he hasn't been beheaded yet. And a couple of his disciples come and visit him. And John sends them to find Jesus and ask Jesus a question. And the question that they're supposed to go and ask is, are you the one who's coming? Or should we look for another? In, in other words, John is saying, are you really the Messiah? Or is the Messiah still to come? And the reason that's kind of awkward is, as I said, John grew up as the cousin of Jesus. He knew exactly who Jesus was. If we look at John's ministry, we see a moment where Jesus passes by and John says to the crowds, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus walks into the waters of the Jordan River to be baptized, John's like, whoa, 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 hang on. Like, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal. I should be baptized by you. 
John knew exactly who Jesus was. So why is now John sending a couple of disciples to say, are, are you really? I suspect that his circumstances had brought doubt. Because John the Baptist knows exactly who Jesus is. So like, hey, man, if my cousin was the son of God, the long prophesied Messiah, I would think if anyone could get me out of prison, it'd be my cousin. I mean, already in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. We've seen him uh, kick out a couple of demons. We've seen him stop a storm with nothing but a word. So John knows that Jesus could just snap his fingers, the, the prison gate could unlock, all the guards could fall asleep, and he could walk out, kind of like what we see with Peter in the book of Acts. And yet John is still in prison. So maybe Jesus isn't really who I thought he was. Maybe he's not the Messiah. So he sends a couple of disciples to go and ask him, are you the one we should be looking for or is there yet another to come? As soon as these guys ask Jesus this question, here's how Jesus responds. This is from Luke 7, starting in verse 21. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. So now Jesus has just performed all these miracles for about an hour. Now he looks at John's disciples and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now there in verse 22, you see him say, go, go tell John what you've seen. So Jesus just performed all of these miracles, and then he begins to say these various phrases. Go, uh, tell him that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed. All of those are little paraphrases, little parts out of the book of Isaiah. Jesus has just taken a bunch of portions of Isaiah and put them together. They're all from areas that, that, that point to the prophecies about the Messiah, like, for instance, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Or how about Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. So Jesus is going back to Isaiah where Isaiah is pointing to the Messiah, Jesus is now saying, guys, you know those things back in Isaiah? I'm fulfilling them. But Jesus throws on one last little bit. He says there that, uh, that good news is proclaimed to the uh, poor. Well, that comes from Psalm, I mean, sorry, not Psalm, Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, another messianic prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So Jesus is saying, this is about me. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I'm the anointed one, and I was anointed to bring good news to the poor. John, as a rabbi, would know this passage. But did you notice what Jesus did? Because the rest of the verse goes on. He didn't come just to bring good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted. He says he also was anointed to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Where, where's John at? 
He's in prison. And yet Jesus leaves this off. And then Jesus, instead of tacking on the last part of verse 1 from, Psalm, uh, from Isaiah 61, instead of saying, yeah, John, I'll bring liberty to the captives. I'll open the prison doors. Instead, he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, Jesus is saying to John, through the, his disciples, John, I know you're in prison. I know it's not fair. You didn't commit any crime. You didn't do anything wrong. I know but I'm not getting you out. And I think Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to John. I told you this was going to be uncomfortable. I told you this was going to be hard. I mean, we want to hear about a God who loves us, and out of that love, he will bring us out of our captivity. He'll bring us out of our difficult circumstances. He will rescue us. That's the God I want. And yet here's Jesus saying, yeah, I know it's tough, but I'm going to let you stay. We don't like this. This this isn't the kind of God we want. This this makes us uncomfortable. I mean, this this is why some people leave the Christian faith. Because they they look at this and they think that either God is uncaring, like he, he just really doesn't care the situation we're in, or, or he's impotent, like he's just not powerful enough. Like he cares, but he just doesn't have the power to, to rescue us out of this. Or maybe he's incompetent, like he has the power, he just doesn't know how to go about actually using it. Or there just isn't a God. Because if there really was a God, he'd be good, he'd be powerful, and he'd get me out of this prison. Some people though, they, they, they hold on to their Christian faith. But they try to re-explain this. They, they try to, you know, like, re, you know, redraw the box for their, their systematic theology and in some way try to fit this in or, or you know, kind of conveniently ignore it. Or they hear it, they receive it, but then they go about their Christian life thinking, this is a God I can't trust. And that affects their worship. It, it affects the, 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 their whole approach to, to Christianity. It affects their approach to life. Because of this un comfortable truth. When we come to something like this, when we come to this uncomfortable moment, it it feels like everything gets really, really fuzzy. Like we just can't see this clearly. When I was in fourth grade, my eyesight just started to deteriorate. Uh, I couldn't see the chalkboard any longer from the back of the room. I had to move up to the front of the classroom I remember being at a football game with my parents and, and I couldn't read the scoreboard. Uh, like, they, they just w- went downward really, really fast. And it wasn't a huge surprise because my, my mom wears glasses, but like, it, it got really bad really fast. Then I finally got to the eye doctor. They prescribed some glasses for me. A week later, they come in and I put them on and all of a sudden, I could see clearly again. What I want to give to you today are some theological glasses that will allow you to see through this clearly. That'll help you see that rather than walking out of here saying, can I really trust God? That you'll walk out of here today realizing I can trust God. I can put my hope in him. And so here are the theological glasses I want to give you today. The first lens that you need to look through is the lens of the gospel. 
So often when we get trapped in our own little prison, our own little circumstances, it could be that we've lost a job or we're in a financial situation or, or you know, a relational issue is going on. When we are stuck in this circumstances and this is all we look at, we're, we're so short-sighted, it then feels like God is incredibly cruel. Like John's stuck in prison. Why won't my cousin get me out? And so we find ourselves here. Why doesn't God seem to care? But then when you look through the lens of the gospel and you look at the cross, you see God cares deeply for you because far more important than your earthly situation and circumstance was your spiritual circumstance. Your spiritual setting was such that you were separated from God eternally because of sin. And God did the greatest thing in the world by sending his one and only son to die in your place. And he completely bridged that gap and he envelops you with his love. He cares for you far more deeply than you could ever imagine. When you look through the lens of the gospel and you see the cross, it will remind you he really does care. Even though my circumstance right now makes me think he doesn't, if I look at the cross, he cares, he loves, he's with me. But then the gospel doesn't just get you looking at the cross, it also helps you see an empty tomb. And you realize that God is powerful. He's so powerful, he could even raise Jesus from the dead. So God has power over death itself. And that right there should give you hope. It should let you know that this circumstance I'm in, this is not the end. Which actually leads us to the second lens. The second lens that you need to look through is the lens of eternity. We so often get so stuck at looking at the here and the now. And when this is all we see, yeah, we get really, really frustrated. We feel like John wanting to send messengers saying, are you really the Messiah? God, are you really good? Are you really there for me? Because I hear all these people talk about the goodness of God. I read about it in the scriptures, but right now I don't feel it. But if you are a Jesus follower you know that the gospel says that this world is not the end, that there is an eternity waiting for you. And when you have your eye on eternity, suddenly you realize my circumstance is temporary. The uh, apostle Peter wrote a letter to a bunch of Jesus followers who found themselves in a really, really difficult circumstance. <laughs> they, they were being persecuted for their faith. It's causing some of them to think that God didn't know, love them. He wasn't with them. Maybe they had been wrong all along. And so some people were starting to abandon the faith and Peter writes them this letter to encourage them. And so after the, the standard kind of greeting, hey, this is coming to you from Peter. I'm writing this letter to these people. Uh, you know, uh, grace and mercy be to you. He says this in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, so there was the, the lens of the gospel. He just pointed to, to Christ, his death and resurrection. He points to the gospel. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he just gave them the lens of eternity. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. So he's saying, put on these glasses, look through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of eternity. You have this hope. Hold on to it. Because though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
He acknowledges that where they find themselves, the circumstances they're in, this is hard. You're grieved. You're hurting. Does God care for me? Well, yes, he does. Because of this unfading, imperishable inheritance that we have through the gospel that awaits us in eternity. So he basically is saying there in verse 6, your circumstance it's temporary. Now, please do not mishear me. I am not saying that you just sit there and then just like suffer through it. Because after all, John sent some disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah or not? And notice Jesus doesn't throw a temper tantrum. He doesn't go, this is John. Like, why is John asking me? He should know who I am. No, he accepts the question. He answers it by revealing his power. So by all means, approach Jesus, approach God, ask him, plead with him, will you change this? God, I need a job. God, I would love to be married someday. God, I need my financial situation changed. God, I could use this. Please, by all means, go to him because he does care for you, he does love you, and he has the power to change your circumstance and your situation. But when he doesn't answer it, the way you want him to, or in the timing, it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. It doesn't mean he's failed you. It doesn't mean he's not powerful enough. It doesn't mean he's uncaring. It means he might have a better plan than what you have. And even if the circumstance you find yourself in were to last you for the rest of your life, Peter is saying, it's temporary. It's just here. It's just now. Because you are receiving an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken from you. The glories of heaven are so much greater than the pain of this world. All of this will fade. It will be gone. And you get Jesus. You get the presence of God. You get eternity. There's a woman by the name of uh, Joni Erickson Tata who was a typical 17-year-old when she and her family went to the Chesapeake Bay to swim. And she decided to dive into the waters, but she didn't know how shallow it was right there. And she clunked her head and uh, broke the, uh, her spine between her fourth and fifth vertebrae, causing her to be paralyzed from the shoulders down. She then ended up in rehab for two years. And in her autobiography, she shares how those two years were the most difficult two years of her entire life. Like, she, she was so angry at God for allowing this to happen to her. It, it led her into a depression. She actually began to think about suicide, and yet she couldn't move her arms to even commit the suicide. And it led her to just question the goodness of God, to even question the existence of God. But Joni began to work through all of this spiritually. She began to put on the lens of the gospel, and the lens of eternity. And she ended up becoming an author. She ended up writing uh, like 40-some books, and she actually learned how to become a painter using her mouth. And through her paralysis and the, the faith that she put in God, God gave her an incredible platform that had encouraged a bunch of people. And in her book, A Place of Healing, she wrote this. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. When all we do is look at the things of this world, we see someone like John in prison to Herod unfairly, and we think, that's wrong. And you know what? It is wrong. And yet, when John's head was separated from his body, John came into eternity, and he heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And he 
was embraced. If you find yourself in a really difficult circumstance right now, do not fall for the lie that God doesn't care for you. Don't fall for the trick that that God is impotent, he, he can't help you. Instead, fall into God's presence and look at the gospel, look through eternity and see God loves you, he's with you. And even if the circumstance never changes, you have God. And so therefore you have everything and you will come through this. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us this type of faith. Uh, This is hard. And so God, I just right now just uh, ask for you to to do a a work here. Um, If there's anything that I just preached that is not in alignment with your scriptures, that you would cause all of us to kind of forget that and let that fade away. But what is of you, what is of a sound doctrine, what is in, in accordance with your scriptures... That, that would remain with us, that that would sit with us, that that would carry with us. Because God, you want us to live by faith. It is in faith where we will find our greatest joy. It's, it's faith in you where we see you work. So God, help us to see you've already done the greatest work possible. Let us look at the cross and the empty tomb to see that you do care, that you are powerful. But also let us look through the lens of eternity to see that even though our circumstance may not be changing as fast as we want it to, you are still with us, you are still good, and what we will get with you is so much greater than the pain we're in. God, help us to know that the people who really truly appreciate the spring the most are those who went through the harshest of winters. So God, I pray for anyone who finds themselves right now in in an emotional or a spiritual winter that they would seek you, they'd cling to you, they'd trust you. God, I believe you are powerful enough to change their circumstance. You can open those prison doors. You can unbind the the, the bounds that hold them down. But yet, God, sometimes you have a better plan. So God, help us to trust you. That if you don't answer our prayers exactly the way we want, in the timing we want, that you are still with us, you are still for us. So God, build our faith. Help us to trust you through all things because your cross shows that you love us and the empty tomb shows us how powerful you are and that the things we find ourselves in right now is not the end. So God, help us to seek you, to be satisfied in you, to trust you. May you just do that deep work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.